This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today I am joined by one of my favorite reoccurring guests. Becca is back for another Halloween episode, and today we are talking about family systems in the concept of, or the context of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So Becca, welcome back to the pod. Thank you, Grace. I'm so excited to be here. This is my favorite time of month, and this is my favorite podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's all coming up millhouse for me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have you back for another, like, spooky Halloween episode, Uh, because for those of you who don't know, last year, Becca came on and did two episodes about the haunting of Hill House and the haunting of Bly Manor, which are available to listen to now if you want to hear Becca's beautiful voice once again. Um, But we decided to do another one this year and uh, just keep kind of like the the spooky content going. So before we really get into like the nitty gritty of family system stuff, where I will essentially be teaching Becca how to do structural family systems therapy, which should be very fun. uh, We kind of wanted to do like a synopsis of the movie if you haven't seen it. Talk about some of the other characters before we really get into the family stuff. And we are focusing mainly on the 1974 version since that's like the beginning of the franchise um but we have pulled some info from the other timelines it's just the mcu version of texas chainsaw massacre (laughs) has a lot of information in it so we're going to mostly be focusing on the 74 version but becca is going to lovely lovingly (laughs) summarize the film for us so take it away becca well um this is pulled directly from imdb we'll start Mm. with i believe the official version that was published and we love to cite sources too yes we do (laughs) So when Sally hears that her grandfather's grave may have been vandalized, she and her paraplegic brother, Franklin, set out with their friends to investigate. After a detour to their family's old farmhouse, they discover a group of crazed, murderous outcasts living next door. As the group is attacked one by one by the chainsaw-wielding Leatherface, who wears a mask of human skin, the survivors must do everything they can to escape. And spoiler alert, most of them... Do not. So here's your spoiler alert, and here's a content warning that it's a lot of talk about violence. (laughs) This movie came out in 1974. (laughs) If if you haven't seen this movie yet, I highly recommend you go and watch it. Uh, I highly recommend you start with the 1974 version because the ones that come after it do not do the original story justice. Um, Something that I'm seeing in younger horror fans, I'll say, as an almost 30-something here, uh, (laughs) is they will recognize traces of classic horror in current media, Mm. and they'll latch onto it, but they won't essentially follow that backwards to see where it started or where it came from. And I think it's a lot of fun if if you educate yourself and you enjoy the source of that, as it were. 
uh, like somebody who says they really enjoyed Scream, but Scream is really based on a number of classic tropes. Grace, are you <laughs> regretting inviting me yet? <laughs> this is one of Becca's like favorite topics is like oh. tropes and horror movies. So we, we got her for a good one. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think that some of these classic 70s and 80s films are really important to watch if you really like horror and like kind of the what did I call I talked about this in the Stranger Things episode the like hyper postmodernism of like noticing symbols and references to other media within media mm-hmm. and quite honestly this the 74 version is not that long to be fair this was the first time I'd watched it in preparation for this episode and I thought I was gonna need like a lot more time and it r- really flew by that's the nice thing about kind of older movies they're usually like under a sweet 90 minutes <laughs> They're very easy to just kind of tuck in on a lunch break and uh, <laughs> watch through, especially if uh, you have the ability to jump forward 10 or 15 seconds at a time, because <laughs> in all honesty, there's a lot of, I believe the term is setup shots. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of B-roll of rural Texas we see in the 1974 version. Not a lot of filler conversation, not a lot of filler shots on the characters. We don't really see the characters a whole lot until action is happening. So there's a little bit of time to relax, yeah, <laughs> as it were. And I'll be honest, re-watching it for this episode, nothing happened for about the first 45 <laughs> minutes. And yeah. you're waiting the entire time, you know, because I'm I partake in current modern horror and I'm waiting the entire time for something spooky, scary, bloody to happen. And it just doesn't happen. No, it's just That's like right. regular people being annoyed at each other for like 45 minutes. <laughs> and it's, yes, it's, it's me going, yes, if uh, I were wheelchair bound, riding in a van, loose, by the way, loose. <laughs> no straps, nobody's wearing a seatbelt. There are no bucket seats. It's a, it's a nightmare. Um, I would be annoyed. It's also Texas in the middle. I believe it's August. Yeah. Um, nice and hot, nice and humid. Really, they really like to actually in the beginning of the movie, they really set that scene with uh, you've got the cicadas buzzing in the background, you've got the steam rising off of the black asphalt. And every shot of the locals we see, they are sweat drenched, they are fan in their faces. <laughs> yeah. They are all, everyone is just suffering the Texas humidity at this point. So. Yeah. And I think what a great way to describe kind of how the movie sets the tone and sets the scene. And it is kind of like a slow, slow burn to a very rapid boil when you get to kind of the first kills. And then and then Leatherface is off and running with that chainsaw. <laughs> Spoiler. Uh- Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can't imagine going in on like a Friday date night with me and my, my girlfriends and saying, Oh, let's go see that. What's that new movie that sounds that Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That sounds bloody and awful and we should totally go. And then you're sitting here for nearly the first hour of the film waiting for the massacre to happen. And once it kind of, it, it's in a sense, it almost reminds me of going through one of those horror houses or like a horror maze mm-hmm. where the first couple of hallways are intended to be calm and to lure you in because you get to a certain point that you realize you can't turn around. And I think that is what the director is trying to lead the audience into Mm. is bringing us into the movie. We've sat down, we've settled down, we stopped chatting. And now we're focusing on the film because we're waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And once it does happen, we can't really look away. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, um, although this is not like a film critique podcast, but 
I think that's one of like Toby Hooper's maybe styles in his directing is like it's a storytelling approach and there's a lot of like attention to making sure the audience is kind of coming along for the ride before the fun parts and gory parts start. (laughs) I think if I recall correctly, he also directed Poltergeist in the early 80s. So it Mm. is a very similar feeling to that where it's just this very, very, very low simmer Mm -hmm. of uneasiness that immediately ramps up to a boil if you will stick with me in this cooking analogy (laughs) um that it's just like I said it's completely unavoidable at that particular point because you just can't you feel like you're stuck in it with the characters and you just feel like you can't maybe pause it or you can't walk away from it because you need to sit through it and you need to just (laughs) bear and grin it essentially um so before we talk about the Sawyer family and family systems which is going to be my thesis statement (laughs) uh I thought we could talk about some of the other characters and like you already mentioned one of the main characters Franklin is in a wheelchair he appears to be like paralyzed from like the waist down it's a pretty good look at America pre the ADA act uh where it's not very accessible for Franklin and his sister and friends invite him on this like road trip to their grandpa's old house without really any consideration for what it'll mean to like take Franklin to -hmm. these places that are like overgrown and also that he's like the only single person on this trip and everyone's like trying to hook up and run around and like be sexy in a haunted house so Franklin really gets the butt end of the stick (laughs) he does he does he really feels like he's meant he's put there as comic relief in a way Mm. but he's also the only character consistently throughout the movie who says I'm concerned about what's going on I think we should turn around I think we should do something else I think Franklin is playing the character the excuse me the audience Mm. in that he's trying to warn the rest of the group because the rest of the group like you said they're all wrapped up in each other because as we have it we have Franklin Hardesty we have his sister Sally Hardesty we have Sally's boyfriend, Jerry, no surname. We have, (laughs) then we have Jerry and Sally's friends, Pam and Kirk, who are boyfriend and girlfriend. So like you mentioned, Grace, we have the, these pair of couples who are so wrapped up in one another, obviously celebrating the honeymoon stages of their relationship. And meanwhile, poor Franklin is just rocking and rolling in the back of this van. Literally. (laughs) Not being listened to, being Mm -hmm. told to quiet down being ignored when he has these complaints very valid complaints by the way and very valid concerns and I wonder if that's because they're invalidating his perspective because of his position being in a wheelchair because Mm -hmm. he is a disabled person or simply because I get the impression that he's the younger brother of the Sally Franklin Mm. sibling pair it's just the way that Sally speaks to Franklin that I get that impression but he could very well be older but he just, he has kind of that little brother, oh, pipe down. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's how the other characters seem to approach him, from my perspective. Yeah, and I wonder if there's almost like they infantilize him because he's in a wheelchair. Like, so the, like, second scene of the movie, so the first scene is like a very gruesome, like, slow pan out of, like, these corpses tied to a graveyard sculpture. But then mm-hmm. when the movie really starts, we see that, They've pulled the van over to let Franklin out to go to the bathroom. And in what I'm assuming is supposed to be funny, but is actually quite like cringy to watch scene, he gets like spooked by the backdraft of a big rig driving by and like tumbles down a hill out of his wheelchair. And everyone's like mad at him about it when it's like really not his fault because 
they parked him on the side of the road to use the bathroom and didn't like help him. And so I I almost feel like from that point on, we really see like, it it doesn't matter what Franklin's age is. They're going to treat him like he's a nuisance and like he's a child. And I think it's unfortunately a depiction that people with disabilities still get today, but a very clear snapshot of like how people who needed maybe mobility support or needed other accommodations were treated in like the time of the 1970s, because this was before federal buildings were needed to have ramps for wheelchairs. This was before like housing buildings needed to have elevators. Like you could really, really exclude disabled people from a lot of spaces. And like Franklin is just such a, I guess, like archetype of that. And so I would imagine that part of it is they just infantilize him because they don't think he's a grown up because he needs some some support in other areas, even though, like you said, he's the smartest one of the bunch. And from the beginning is like, hey, maybe we should not go into the house that has little bones hanging in the doorway. <laughs> I think all of what you said is entirely valid. And it, I have to agree that it's, even though Sally must have grown up with Franklin and has what I would assume is the most experience living with and working with somebody who is in a wheelchair. She doesn't seem to show any more compassion for her brother than her boyfriend or her friends. Yeah. She seems to just join in on this. Oh, it's his fault that he rolled down the hill. Oh, it's you know too bad that he can't follow us down to the lake or it's too bad that he can't get into the house by himself which is must be incredibly frustrating or must have been incredibly frustrating for Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> and I have, I have to be honest, when I was watching it, I was like, are they going to murder Franklin first because he's in a wheelchair? Like, because all the characters are treating him as like a second class citizen, essentially. I was like, are they just mm-hmm. going to murder him first? Because how are they going to essentially deal with like a murder chase with this person in a wheelchair in this mm-hmm. like off the off the beaten path terrain? And I was pleasantly surprised that Franklin does not die first. In fact, it's it's Pam and Kirk, right? They're the first ones yes. to get snatched. Yes. And in a very like two teens who are trying to have sex get murdered first because they're bad teens for wanting to be sexual. And Pam has absolutely zero clothes on for most of the movie, which was a whole nother issue. But like, I, I was surprised that Franklin didn't get murdered first and that every suggestion he had was the right thing to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and even when, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, upon rewatching, I couldn't help but wonder if Franklin was, was I couldn't remember if he was supposed to be the first victim. Mm. Um, after, so after the Hardesties and group um, stop by at their familial grave plot mm-hmm. in Texas, which that was the point of the road trip is they, I'm, don't quite remember where they drove out from, but they drove out from someplace in Texas to a rural part of Texas to visit their grandfather's grave because that grave site had recently been um, in the news for some robbings and general desecration of other graves in the area. So Some light de- desecration. <laughs> yes, so they make a little summer fun trip out to the grave to visit it. And while they're out there, Franklin suggests that they go visit the family, uh, the old family farmstead while they're out there. So while they're making their way, they pick up a hitchhiker who, uh, from the road, is clear, not somebody that you want to pick up. No, he has like pelts around his neck and like a gross, loose bag of unidentified belongings. (laughs) Yeah, and he's moving very erratically. Uh, His body language is very off-putting, but I believe he pretty much throws himself in front of the van 
to force them to slow down. So it's it's a little tough in that sense. But um, despite Franklin's protests, they let this hitchhiker onto the into the van, uh, and the hitchhiker proceeds to bully Franklin mm-hmm. verbally and also stabs him with a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, which at that point. Um, I believe it's Kirk pulls over and kicks Franklin out of the car, or kicks, excuse me, kicks the hitchhiker out of the van, yeah. but everyone else in the van just tells Franklin to just button up. He's fine. This man is trapped in a wheelchair, trapped in a van and just got stabbed by a stranger. Stabbed really bad. And they just kind of like slap a little bandaid on it. And, and also he took like the hitchhiker takes a photo of Franklin and then like tries to scam him out of $2 for the photo. Oh yes. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> but then also like laughs at Franklin. Like the photo is a bad photo of him and is like making fun of what he looks like. So it's like, of course, no one's going to give you $2 for that. You little weirdo. Uh, and then when Franklin refuses to buy it, that's when he stabs him. And he like sticks a like straight razor, like really deep into Franklin's arm. And, mm-hmm. you know, everyone kind of freaks out. But then you're right. There's no follow up. There's no like, Franklin, should we take a little detour to a doctor or like a veterinarian since we're in rural Texas? Like anything oh, the, we can do? <laughs> the big concern after the hitchhiker is, oh, we're running out of gas. Yeah. <laughs> and even when they pull over to the gas station and they help unload Franklin out of the van, He's talking to himself about how wicked the cut is on his arm and how much he's bleeding. And everybody's telling him, yes, you did get stabbed. Yes, you are bleeding, but we're actually out of gas. Like they don't have enough money between the five of them yeah. to make, how much was gas in 1974? Like it's less than like 30 <laughs> cents. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. But immediately just goes right out the window. And granted, the stabbing might have been just a funky plot point to teach us more about the hitchhiker, who, spoiler, will show up later in the story. Therefore, we as the audience are supposed to forget it, so the characters forget about it. Mm. But it's something that bothered me. It's just like in any action movie, when the protagonist gets shot, and then half an hour later, he's wearing a new shirt, walking around downtown like it doesn't matter. It's like, <laughs> no, this man needs to go to the ER and get stitches. Please help him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so what could be a narrative device to throw us off does unfortunately represent kind of like the dismissal that people with disabilities get and the I think the assumption too that because someone has a physical disability that they also have like an intellectual disability like Franklin can't be the smart one of the group or the rational one of the group because he has physical limitations and it's just kind of represents unfortunately I think the way that people with disabilities still get stigmatized in modern culture that's an entirely valid point i'm actually racking my brain right now trying to think of the last horror movie i watched where a character had a visible disability Mm. and i'm coming up blank the only Um, one i can think of is hush because she's hearing impaired but i don't know it's kind of gimmicky (laughs) it is it is a little gimmicky it's it's very plot centered and i guess i guess if a modern director or producer were to involve Uh, a visibly disabled character and that disability was then used against them in the film that would be uncomfortable to the point of outrage I guess in fans I'm trying to think of every saw I've ever seen and I'm wondering if Jigsaw made sure that the people he captured were going to be able to play his silly games he's doing his homework beforehand <laughs> i i mean jigsaw was kind of notorious for doing his homework right that's all he that's did his thing his day. Yeah, yeah. Stalker to, yeah 
I think that's that a good point. But it's um, yeah, and that I think that looks like having people with disabilities be like in writers' rooms and be directors because mm-hmm. then they can give their perspective on like how to not infantilize a disabled character, but also to not like make them into like inspiration porn where they're so strong and can do everything and nothing can hurt them because the reality of horror is that it highlights how vulnerable human beings are. And mm-hmm. that means exploiting all of the weaknesses or like potential areas in one person's like psyche and body that the monster can exploit. So it's a it's a very delicate line. And I would love to see like a movie come out that has a disabled main character mm-hmm. and that really wrestles with these things. So if you're out there, we're ready for your movie. <laughs> <laughs> we are. It's it's like like you said, it's it's tough. We want well when I say we, I say we as an audience member, we as people who consume horror media regularly want to see variety and diversity and representation of different kinds of everything mm-hmm. in these films. But you're right, it's tough unless you have a representative of that group in the writer's room or sitting with the director during scenes to help guide these in a mindful and intelligent way. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great segue into the next point that I did want to talk about when we talk about representation, because it's not an episode of Psychologically Minded if I don't talk about feminism or feminist psychology in some way. (laughs) So I think, as I've alluded to with my conversation about Pam, the way that like women and violence against women is used in this film is, I would say, gratuitous, um, especially if you compare the deaths of Pam and Sally, or Sally doesn't die, but if you compare the assault of Pam and Sally to the men, The men get either yonked in the head pretty quickly and taken out or chainsawed very, Mm -hmm. very quickly. Whereas the women either like Pam is still alive watching her boyfriend be butchered. And Mm -hmm. Sally is like, she has like a 15 minute chase scene and then she's being like tied up. She goes in and out of consciousness multiple times, tries to escape, gets dragged back. And then she escapes at the very last minute, like covered in her own blood and like probably multiple people's blood and the entire like last 30 minutes of the movie is probably just Sally screaming her absolute lungs out and it's truly a horrendous sound and they kind of foreshadow it at the beginning when they first get to the house she's upstairs with her boyfriend scream laughing in a way that is very upsetting and Franklin Mm -hmm. hears it and is like I hope you're okay because it kind of sounds like she's being tortured but it's Mm -hmm. her like giggling with her boyfriend and like that's how that movie ends is essentially her making almost exactly the same sound but because she's being tortured and that was what was hard for me to watch the second half of the movie was it was just like what is the purpose of this is it just to like torture a woman on screen is it for a storytelling point it was hard for me to kind of figure out like what is the point of having a female character be screaming at this like intense pitch and intense level of torture for this long of the movie So I just wanted to bring that up. That's a really beautiful point about the her screaming in the very beginning when she's upstairs with Jerry versus her screaming at the very end while she's running for her life. That's not a connection that I had made. And I'm really glad you did. (laughs) It's one of those little extra things that just makes me enjoy it, enjoy the process all the more. I'm of two minds. I mean, one part of me feels that making a, putting a woman in that position, making her the victim, it's, as an audience member, it makes us doubt that she's going to be able to get away Mm. because she's a woman because all of the men around her have been killed and because all all of her attackers are men 
Mm-hmm. So we feel immediately that the odds are stacked against her. Even if we are mindfully thinking, we go into the movie theater and excuse this phrase, we go into the movie theater and we think girl power. <laughs> girl boss. <laughs> girl boss, yeah, she's out there girl bossing it to the end. We still may be thinking in that skewed view of, well, of course she's going to be overpowered and because all of the men were overpowered and you know, Leatherface is huge and he's a man and of course he's going to overpower her. Even the old man, Drayton Sawyer, the Sawyer mm-hmm. patriarch, I believe, overpowered her at one point. Mm-hmm. And then I'm of the other mind that in a way, her, the violence against her, the being tied up, being beaten, Pam being made to watch Kirk's death mm-hmm. is fetishizing it in a way. It's, mm. there may be some kind of pleasure taken from it. And I say that, and please, Grace, let me know if this is an inappropriate tangent. There was a time where I worked as, I was an actor in a scare maze. Mm. Um, I was 17, 18 at the time. I played a victim in a horrible dentist office. (laughs) (laughs) And every couple of nights, I would get wicked makeup done to make the side of my face appear as though it had been shredded open. Fun. And my job was to recline in the dentist's chair (laughs) while the dentist... uh, a man whose name I believe was Chuck, who was in his <laughs> late 30s, uh, wore... Shout out Chuck. Shout out Chuck. <laughs> uh, Chuck would lean over me and push a power drill without a bit. I was very safe. Would push a power <laughs> drill without a bit into my prosthesis here, into uh-huh. my cheek, and pull the trigger. And my job was to then scream and thrash and kick and cry whenever guests came through the room. So I did this for multiple hours a night for about a week and a half straight. And halfway through, I took one night off. And when I came back, Chuck said he was really excited to see me, said he had missed me. And I said, oh, that's, that's really nice of you. Chuck then proceeded to tell me that he missed me because nobody screamed the way that I did. Chuck, no. <laughs> and I told him that that sounded a little inappropriate. And he told me he didn't mean it in an inappropriate way. Mm. He meant that it made him hot. And he wanted to hear it more. So he doubled down on it being deeply he inappropriate. Doubled, he doubled. Well, you know, if you if you preempt something with this isn't inappropriate or this isn't racist or this isn't sexist, it isn't, right? But <laughs> if I tell you the dish isn't spicy, it's then not spicy. I'm being incredibly sarcastic, listeners. <laughs> you can't see my face, but my eyebrows are jumping all They're around. They're really going. Just to be clear, what Chuck said to me as a 17, 18 year old was not okay. Even if I was his age, it would not be okay. Um, but again, like I said, that particular experience can't help but inform some of the horror media that I've seen since, because I will forever remember that conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember spending the rest of my time in that room being incredibly uncomfortable mm-hmm. and being very self-conscious. So I can't help but think that some of this torture and torment that we're seeing Pam and Sally go through is in a way being presented almost pleasurably to certain members of the audience. I mean, mm-hmm. almost every time we see Pam, she appears to be naked because every time she's shot from the back, She's wearing a top that is backless and she's mm-hmm. wearing little tiny, little tiny shorts. Granted, we are working with the 1970s and that's kind of the fashion of the time, but there's also other ways to film your actresses moving about the scene that isn't from the ground up, up into their backside, onto their bare back, um, yeah. or onto Miss Sally, down onto her chest, 
into mm-hmm. her screaming face and onto her bare legs. <laughs> yeah, there's just, it's very much coming from the male gaze, I would say, kind of lighting those sensors in their brain mm. whenever they see scenes like that. So again, I apologize if that was a bit of a, if an inappropriate tangent, but it was something that came to mind as you were bringing up the more feminist aspect of this torture of Sally and Ham to a lesser extent. Yeah, no, I think it was a really, I mean, I'm sorry that it happened to you and I'm sure you're not the only woman who has experienced unfortunate comments like that, but I think it really illustrates that, well, one, we could have like a sexual harassment in the workplace conversation, but it also highlights that in horror spaces, whether it's, you know, at a haunted house or in a movie or like an online like you know like a discord group or something that the line between a woman in pain and a woman in a sexual position is blurred for certain people who are consuming that media and this gentleman wherever he may be whatever offender list he might be on he wasn't able to separate out like your attractiveness from the role that you were playing and I just consider that in like some of the original horror movies and even in more modern horror horror when exploitation can be a part of the story and an interesting like conversation to have about the story when does it cross over into like actually exploiting the actresses and the real people who are participating in that and I again just want to tie it back to like what I talked about about Shelley Duvall last week of like you don't have to torture a woman or a person to make good art, you can collaboratively work with people to get good performances out of them. And I don't know as much about what the actress who played Sally went through. I believe her name is Marilyn. I don't know like much about what she went through while she was filming, but I can't imagine every day with sunshine and roses when you're covered in fake blood and screaming to the point where I'm sure my vocal cords would rupture. Mm-hmm. There is something psychologically damaging about like having to inhabit that role and be surrounded by men who look horrifying and are like jeering at you as you're in this like torture position. So I just Mm -hmm. bring it up and that I think that it can go both ways. I think it can be like a commentary on like how women are put in society and that Sally surviving is kind of subversive in that she is strong enough to escape, even though she doesn't look like it. But on the other hand, like at what cost do we tell these stories to the people who are behind them or to the women and men who watch these movies and maybe internalize some of these messages so just my feminist (laughs) soapbox once again (laughs) well I think we've kind of done the intro covered some of the other characters but the meat of this episode is going to be about the family dynamics of the Sawyer family which includes Leatherface and all of his lovely inbred incestuous (laughs) family members I'm not quite sure what the right term is Um, but we're going to go through each character in, in the Sawyer family each of the main characters and then I'll get into structural family therapy, which is a real fun one. First and foremost, Leatherface. He's our he's our main guy. He gets the most screen time across all the versions. He's the he's the icon. He used to be a butch- butcher at the local slaughterhouse. This is a big theme in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that like this economic depression and the modernization of the slaughterhouse put a lot of people out of work and that Leatherface, the only job he can do is like butcher animals. And so when he can't do it at the slaughterhouse anymore, he has to do it to people. He takes orders from his family with like almost no independent thought. We never really get to see Leatherface having his own ideas or participating in the family. He's really just kind of like told what to do. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, I guess essentially would take the role of like the youngest child, I think. I'm not, I think he might be older technically than his brother, but they all are each other's like uncle and father. So 
it's hard to tell but he to me really presents as kind of like the youngest brother who's just kind of told what to do and just kind of you know go along with your day it's ironic that you use the phrase uh the meat of the story <laughs> as, <so> unintentional. <laughs> as nubbins sawyer or the hitchhiker that we meet at the beginning of the film says oh yeah my family's always been in meat <laughs> So that leads me that leads me to believe that being a butcher is kind of a is kind of a what's the phrase that I'm looking for here? Like a high status job. Like a high status job, yeah. particularly in their family. Maybe it's a point of pride for them, or it was a point of pride for them until these slaughterhouses fell off to the wayside and these workers, these blue-collar workers were like, oh, because as I came to understand it, Leatherface is the one doing the butchering, the capturing and the butchering of their victims at one point we see in the 1974 film uh after three people three strangers have come into his house and he's tried to deal with them as best he can leatherface has a little freak out yeah he does he goes to the window he we see him grabbing his head we see him sitting down he seems visibly unsettled about all these people that are suddenly coming into their home and doesn't quite know what to do with himself which I think then feeds itself back into him waiting for Drayton or maybe his father, maybe his uncle, uh, the older man in the house, but not the oldest man in the house, <laughs> the older, one of the older men in the house to tell him what to do from then forward. Yeah, he, uh, he appears to be like quite isolated in the house. Nubbins and Drayton go out of the house and seem to have like other lives, whereas Leatherface is pretty much like stuck at home another mm. like feminist point is that there are several times where it's clear that leatherface is wearing he wears a human skin mask at throughout the film there are times where the mask changes and appears to be a woman's face and he's put makeup on it and he wears like a, a more feminine wig and he puts on like an apron or i think at one point he even has like a frillier like dress on Mm -hmm. um, but he'll sometimes wear like the women's mask with a suit and it's almost like when he puts the woman's mask on he's like playing the role of like homemaker and he's preparing the human meat meal <laughs> for his family um, because there are no women left alive in the Sawyer family at the time that we see them in the movie and so he kind of as well as playing the role of like dutiful brother and son isolated at home he also kind of takes on the role of like homemaker feminine mother role it, it's an interesting like gender thing that uh, but i don't know how much of it is his choice or if he's told like you have to put this on because we need like a mommy at home because he doesn't have much agency i know that was really gross <laughs> becca made a face <laughs> nothing i hate more than that particular phrase in this particular context one, this is such a good point. And one of the most prominent times I can think back to is when Sally is quote unquote sitting down with the Sawyer family at dinner time. She is there not of her own volition, mm -hmm. but we see all of the members of the family are sitting down for dinner, including the oldest man in the world, Grandpa. Literally. <laughs> Grandpa Sawyer. Um, but Leatherface for the occasion is wearing one of his masks of presumably female women's skin with the makeup and this mm -hmm. gray curly wig on and if I'm not mistaken if I'm not mistaken he does speak a handful of lines during this scene and it's in a very Mrs. Doubtfire voice <laughs> it's so unsettling to me and I can't like Grace like you said it's unclear if it's something he does by choice 
or if it's something he's told to do because I in that particular scene nobody blinks an eye at it nobody Mm -hmm. makes a joke about it they all just kind of it's just one of the things that happens at dinner time and it's it's one of the more it's like a quick moment but I find it to be one of the more unsettling moments because I can't tell if Leatherface is trying to play his mom who or his grandmother who is a very withered but present corpse upstairs (laughs) where they keep grandfather Mm -hmm. it's it's entirely unclear why he's inhabiting this visage of a quote-unquote woman if it's for him if it's for his family or if it's for the comfort of their quote-unquote guest It's Mm. just, it's one of those things that I could, I would love to ask the director about or the writer about. It's just one of those things that still kind of sticks with me to to this day. Yeah. And there is something also like very uncanny valley about it because the masks never quite fit and are like distorted across his face. But yeah, it's just, there is something about like, we don't know what this character, how he like feels about wearing these clothes or putting on this mask. Not that we need to really be too sympathetic to Leatherface's <laughs> reality because he is quite a murderer, but it mm-hmm. it just, it does add an extra element of like uncertainty. And I think with that comes discomfort of like, is this a person being forced to like play a mom role while grandma's, you know, dehydrated upstairs and there's no other women around? Like what comes with that? What other like abuse is put on him because he's forced to dress like a woman or play this role? Or maybe Mm -hmm. he likes it and the family just kind of ignores it. And it's just kind of a thing Leatherface does, but we don't get to know that. And I think that's what adds to it kind of being unsettling of like, what is, is he okay? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) I have to agree. I feel like there's a lot of, in modern media, there's a lot of explanation going on. Mm. There's a lot of breakdown as far as the motivation of the antagonist of the motivation behind their crimes of the psychological reasoning behind the things they do why they do but just being presented with this as fact and not having any not having anyone comment on anything is really unsettling because it leaves us as the viewer as the audience to really come up with our own story reasons for it yeah and a little bit of teaser for the later part of the episode but i think this happens a lot in family systems that are more rigid or have more uh what we might call diffuse boundaries where you don't really say anything to each other you don't really acknowledge elephants in the room and the family just kind of moves along and no one ever gets to really like have their say or you know be acknowledged it's a give and take because on one hand you don't get harassed about it but on the other hand you don't really maybe get to be your true self because the family won't really make space for that. So that could be what's going on with Leatherface. Or it's just another like, what's the creepiest thing we can think of? And it's the 1970s and men dressing up as women is the like scariest thing we can think of, which is not my favorite. (laughs) Not my favorite trope. (laughs) Another thing that I just want to mention about Leatherface from the multiple timelines of this franchise is that the 2003 remake hints that he may have been born at the slaughterhouse and thrown into a dumpster by some random woman and then the Sawyer family adopts him it kind of tries to like retcon the incest storyline of the 74 version either way regardless of like what timeline we see Leatherface in he does not seem to have had a relationship with a mother or a mother figure let alone a relationship with a father figure And so I think some of the stuff that we see Leatherface doing could very much be similar to what we see of children who grow up separated from a primary caregiver and never get to form an attachment. Mm -hmm. And that can result in some of the like extreme anxiety about leaving his home, some of his maybe extreme like acting out behaviors. 
not that growing up without a parent makes you leather face, but I think that he's kind of an exaggerated example of like being stripped of a primary caregiver really does make it difficult for a person to kind of contain themselves and build an identity. So poor, poor dumpster baby leather face. <laughs> I like talked myself into feeling bad for this character and he's like disgusting, but anyway. A few, so, a few minutes ago, you said maybe we shouldn't feel, we shouldn't feel sympathetic for him. And there you go. Here I am. That's, that's a therapist job though. Like I love everyone, everyone I work with. I'm like, I understand you. I feel, I feel for you, uh, including Leatherface, not my client. <laughs> okay. So next we have Nubbins, which absolute worst name in the world. Nubbins or the hitchhiker, who is the character we're introduced to toward the beginning when he cuts Franklin up. Technically is Leatherface's relative. He's either a cousin, uncle, or brother very unclear from even the wiki Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he really is kind of in the middle where his where drayton the more father figure really speaks down to nubbins and then nubbins really speaks down to leatherface and so it's kind of this like trickle down of who has power over who because leatherface has been identified as kind of like the weakest link in the family and so nubbins is like exerting control over leatherface to kind of get over how he's abused by the generation above him he's also gross (laughs) He is incredibly gross, and I'm confident in saying that Nubbins is the person behind all of the grave desecrations Mm. across rural Texas, because at one point, Drayton gets out of the car to address Nubbins about this and chases him down and tells him, as he's beating him, you could have gotten caught, you're such an idiot, you're such a fool, what were you doing? And Nubbins is saying... I was just having a good time. I wasn't hurting nobody. <laughs> yeah. But that's what he's got in his creepy little blue bag. He's got bones. I bet you're right. Which it's never addressed in the film how the grave desecration is related to the Sawyer family. But I think that's probably the best hypothesis that Nubbins has some interesting hobbies. And mm-hmm. because this slaughterhouse cut a lot of jobs, they have time to fill in the day. So he plays with bones. <laughs> it's yeah, apparently that's it. How he gets around baffles me to think that every time he gets picked up as a hitchhiker he hurts or scares the living daylights out of whoever's driving him i can i can only imagine the locals just stay away i mean there's got to be like flyers up that are like do not pick this man up (laughs) i would hope so i mean we meet at one point the sally franklin and their friends pull over at a gas station that doesn't have gas to fill up and the gas station owner the only thing he says about the Sawyer family is that they don't take kindly with strangers which is such an under exaggeration on that man's part he looked them in the eye and knew where they were going and didn't say anything about anything because he was waiting waiting for a feast (laughs) apparently oh my goodness yeah. We don't learn much else about Nubbins in this version, and he seems to not show up in the other versions, at least in a meaningful way. I think he's dead in like the sequel. But Nubbins is just, he's hanging out in the family, dealing with his own stuff, also seems to be quite ready to fly off the handle. His his emotions escalate like pretty quickly. We see him really get frenzied when um, Sally is at the dinner table, and they're like kind of winding her up before they kill her. Um, and so he also had Leatherface is a little less emotional, but Nubbins is very labile, very dysregulated. Like it, it doesn't seem like he has the ability to maybe calm himself down or think about the consequences of his actions when he's 
slicing people up. Exactly. He seems to, he seeks that pleasure wherever that pleasure may be. If it's laughing in Sally's face while he pretends to stab her, or if it's, yeah. Running um, around with grandpa in the wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. Doing whatever he'll do. It's, um, he's unsettling in a very Richard Chase sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to do whatever it is that I'm going to do. Richard Chase being the vampire of Sacramento, mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know. <laughs> who don't have broken brains like me and Becca. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just like, it's like, it's chaotic. You don't quite understand the rationale for his behavior. Like even the the slicing of Franklin's arm or like he blows up the photograph that he takes of Franklin. It's mm-hmm. not clear why he does what he does. There's no like antecedent behavior consequence with him. It's just purely random which is unsettling I think there's a reason why he's like that it's to unsettle us because we don't know what nubbins is going to do next and I hate saying nubbins I'm just (laughs) I don't like it okay so the next we have Drayton Sawyer who is I guess takes the role as like father although again maybe an uncle maybe a brother we don't really know um he appears to be the most able to fit into society because he does actually run the gas station with no gas which mm-hmm. seems to be a great scam to get people <laughs> into his neighborhood so that his family can eat them. And he kind of plays the role of like directing both Leatherface and Nubbins. He seems to be the one they kind of look to for direction. He meets out punishment and discipline to the family, which seems to be mostly by beating the crap out of them with mm-hmm. whatever he can get his hands on. Uh, but then he also like is really, I'm just going to say he's kind of prissy about killing. He like, doesn't really want to kill anyone but he will eat human meat and command his like children to kill but he kind of sees himself as like above the dirty work which I think is kind of a metaphor for like people who think they're above like the blue collar work of being in the slaughterhouse like Drayton wouldn't have been working in the slaughterhouse with the rest of the family so he kind of Mm -hmm. looks down on like the messy work that they do if we want to be economic about it (laughs) i think if he were at all involved in the slaughterhouse business he probably would have worked in the office somewhere yeah like middle management at some point he does it's interesting though during the dinner scene again drayton does claim to be the cook Mm. so he does not seem to mind handling the raw ingredients as it were that Leatherface and Nubbins procure for him mm-hmm. and maybe he sees that as his part of giving back to the family or him taking responsibility for the quote-unquote children being Leatherface and Nubbins um, but you're entirely correct Grace in that I think he is trying to keep himself separate from what Leatherface does Mm-hmm. even as he directs it and even though we see him gain at some point he tells Sally you do what you have to do it doesn't mean you have to enjoy it even mm. though he is clearly enjoying tormenting Sally at the dinner table and back when he caught her on the road and drove her back to the house he was purposely beating down on her with a fist to keep her from to keep her screaming and to keep her mm-hmm. storming and was obviously enjoying himself during this process So he's just really saying one thing, but displaying another, I think. Even though he may not necessarily be able to stomach the bloodier things that Leatherface does on his behalf. Yeah, whatever, whatever, like, distinctions he's made, he's made them wide enough that he seems to be, like, the special one or, like, outside of whatever it is that they do. Even though he, it does seem to enjoy, like, torturing a woman for quite a long time. 
And mm-hmm. we see in that scene at the dinner table, he goes back and forth between like laughing along with Nubbins and Leatherface and then being like, just get, you know, put her out of her misery. Like this is, you're torturing her. It's not, and almost like holding himself in this space of like, I sympathize with her. We're going to put her out of her misery like you would with an animal at a slaughterhouse. And I was reading on the the wiki page that Toby Hooper apparently has suggested in some of the commentary DVDs that Drayton has a personality disorder and that this that him switching back and forth between those positions is like the symptom of the personality disorder, which I was like, what a cop out. <laughs> Obviously, like, I just, I don't know what personality disorder Toby Hooper thinks this per, this character has. I think it's like a cop out to be very vague and say that it's just a personality disorder in general and not like be specific or like say why. And just mm-hmm. because someone like changes their mind or like acts different ways in different moments doesn't mean they meet criteria for personality disorder. So that's just my little extra like, you know, DSM fact for the day of like it it there's no evidence in this scene of a personality disorder. I think there is a lot more going on with the fact that they eat human meat. That's maybe more the like mental illness part I would be looking at. Yeah, of everything that they are responsible for doing and everything we see them portray, that is probably the most alarming (laughs) practice that they do. And apparently they've been doing it for such a long time that they have furniture and decorations and it's not just how they survive, but it is a lifestyle of theirs that they take pride in. Yeah, they, they are like, they're proud of like the ritual around it. And as we talk about grandpa, like they look up to grandpa as like the, like the best, I don't even know what you say, butcher, murderer. Like he kind of set this precedent. He deserves a place of honor. They're even like, let him kill Sally, which he cannot do because he's literally 124 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like He cannot Oldest move. man in the world. Oldest yeah. man in the world. But yeah, you're right. It's almost like it's become a source of pride and it is part of the family culture to the point where I don't think they even could live a different lifestyle like to them this is it this is the best way to live life there is no consideration of another way of existing within the family this might be a little bit divergent but um there's got to be a reason why grandpa's that old is it the human meat (laughs) i think it's the blood i think it's supposed to be the blood he's not like a healthy 124 year old but he's 124 years old he he can't move on his own he has to be carried down the stairs by nubbins and leatherface but he is cognizant of some things. Yeah, he's moving around. He's moving around. He doesn't have any lines, um, which what a role um, to be present uh, for. But there's something almost supernatural to that now that I think about it. And maybe I'm wondering if grandpa is the one that showed them the way of cannibalism, not just the way of good butchering. <laughs> and he is reaping the benefits of what he has taught them to this incredibly advanced age that's just a little food for thought for no i think (laughs) (laughs) i think you're onto something because i don't remember where i saw this it's not in this version but in one of the remake timelines there is the insinuation that grandpa learned how to eat human meat during the korean war and that he like he was in the war in the korean war deployed and when he came back home he brought this like way of cannibalism home to his family mm-hmm. but then there's also it's also suggested that grandpa was the first generation to quit the slaughterhouse because he didn't like the modern methods of killing animals he liked the old school version so he quit and that due to like them being really poor and him giving up his job they turned to eating human meat as like a food insecurity management technique 
<laughs> so it, it's unclear, but it, do, it does seem that grandpa was the one who was like, you know, it's a good idea, cannibalism. <laughs> and he benefited. I mean, he does, you're right. He doesn't look good, but he is still kicking. He is technically at the end of the film. Everybody is. So that's fair. Everybody, everybody in the Sawyer family is still kicking. <laughs> yeah, they're still, except for Mama Sawyer, but uh, or Grandmother Sawyer. We're not really sure. Sawyer. She makes an appearance. Yeah, so I guess we kind of covered a grandpa there at the end. Um, like I said, he is the like he is seen as the t- uppermost head of the household. Has this like place of reverence and has seemed to have like set the tone for how the family operates. So I would imagine that Grandpa probably treated Drayton very similar to how Drayton treats Leatherface and Nubbins. This seems to be the way that the family communicates, and that everything is punished, everything is disciplined nothing is ever good enough and i would imagine grandpa probably set the tone for that as as i can say from uh, i guess a layman's perspective it sounds like the abuse just kind of trickled down the generations and oh, god forbid nubbins never had children or leatherface had children but i imagine they would just continue to pass it down to them as well okay so now is a good time to jump into structural family therapy so becca let me give you a little rundown well first of all have you ever heard of structural family therapy before i sent you the outline for the day <laughs> I have not. No, I'm excited to learn more about it. Okay, great. So this will be a a bottom-up explanation of what this uh, family systems theory is. So structural family therapy was created by a man named Salvador Mnuchin, who, although his name sounds very Italian, is actually from Argentina, and then moved to Israel in the 50s to do his, um, I guess, like psychotherapy work. He uh, was self-taught. He didn't really like go to school (laughs) in the same way that like other family systems theories creators did. He uh, learned from like observing other therapists and psychiatrists and then like created his own theory out of what he saw and read um but basically what he his theory says is like we want to evaluate the structure hence structural of a family and to do that we want to look at patterns boundaries and hierarchies so kind of like what is the building blocks of a family and where do we need to like intervene to kind of relieve tension or relieve the suffering of a family. So patterns pretty clear. <laughs> it's patterns of behavior, right? We're looking for things that show up and over and over again. Boundaries in structural family therapy refer to either the spoken or unspoken rules of a family that manage the psychological or physical distance between family members. So if we think in terms of the Sawyer family, <laughs> physically unclear they're not very they're not close physically right would you agree that like there's not a lot of physical affection between the family members i think the only time we see anybody getting physical it's physical violence yeah between drayton and nubbin so yes yeah so their physical boundaries require like violence to be involved or like grandpa i guess gets a little more because he gets carried around (laughs) you know i think leatherface may pat grandpa a little bit when they do settle him down for dinner. So there is a little bit of, fe- of affection between Leatherface and Grandpa, but that may simply be respect from the youngest generation to the oldest generation in the family. Mm. Or Leatherface, who is at that time portraying the more female, embodying the more female version of himself. So he may be displaying that mm. persona. Yeah, like he, he can be more affectionate when he's in the like woman mask because of the rules of what women are allowed to do in the family. That's a really good point. 
Yeah. So we, and we already kind of talked about this, that it's clear that the Sawyer family has a lot of unspoken rules. There's no like clear discussion scene between them about who does what, except for Drayton kind of yelling at them to do what he's told them to do before. So I would argue that in terms of structural family therapy, this family has a lot of very unspoken boundaries that dictate their physical distance and then their psychological distance. So psychological distance is just like how close do you let someone get to know you? And I think that this family uses violence to keep each other separate. Because if you keep someone separate, then you can do more violence against them. And the violence keeps them separate from you. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling feedback loop to be violent against your family members because then they can't get close to you. And you can be more violent to them because you don't feel connected to them. So I would say psychologically quite distant from each other in the Sawyer family. Oh, and also the incest is like another physical closeness thing that's weird. <laughs> and we don't see a, a much in the in the 74 version because there's like no women around that we know of except for grandma <laughs> being dead in the attic. Um, but I would imagine that then the rules about how men and women in the family or people who can procreate in the family interact uh, allow for more physical closeness so that the incest like can continue. So that's the the boundaries part. Rules or roles in the family is just like, what do you play in the family? What What are you asked to do of? Leatherface is clearly the butcher. That's his role of the family. Drayton, I would argue, is the public face of the family because he's, although Nubbins also goes out, Nubbins is not like respected in the community. Like no one wants to talk to Nubbins. So Drayton kind of is like the spokesperson or the public face of the family. Grandpa is the patriarch of the family. He's revered. And Nubbins is like the outcast of the family that is still tolerated. Curious what you think of those roles or if you would imagine them maybe having different roles. No, I think that I think that assignment is very fair considering the films. I mean, Leatherface being the youngest, he also happens to be the biggest and possibly the strongest of all of them. So it mm. makes sense that the responsibility of capturing and then butchering their sustenance falls mm. onto him. He also happens to be subservient to the other members of the family. So it makes it easier for them to tell him, this is what we need done. This is how you're going to do it. Uh, because as far as I recall, nobody else helps Leatherface in any of these kills. I mean, even at the end of the film, Leatherface is the only member of the family that chases Sally down. And mm. he, that boy runs with a full, <laughs> with, with a full chainsaw. He runs after her down the street in this Texas heat. It makes, it makes complete sense to me that Leatherface is the one that sh really shoulders the burdens of the like day-to-day -day chores of the family. And Drayton being the public face, he's really the only one with enough clean clothes that can be out in the public. Yeah. <laughs> the grandpa can't physically get out of the house anymore maybe at one point he was the face of the family but mm. he's got to the point where he's so old and he physically can't be out there anymore that he's since become more of a figurehead mm. mm -hmm. of the family he's more of the person that the rest of the family gathers around and rallies around when things are tough or when they have something to celebrate i.e sally and the rest of their the rest of the young adults that were murdered for that particular feast that evening as far as Nubbins goes, I mean, he's kind of a wild card. Nubbins may very like, like if I can imagine in a world had Nubbins's, <laughs> Nubbins's actions at these grave sites caught the authorities' attention and brought the authorities to the, the Sawyer family home, 
I imagine Nubbins would have become the next victim. Mm. The bond between the family doesn't seem all that strong to Mm -hmm. me, doesn't seem all that rigid. It feels very much like if you slip out of your role, if you refuse to adhere to these rules that, again, are unspoken, perhaps, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, you are removed from the family unit. I imagine they would do that without much... (laughs) hesitation really but no I completely agree with these roles that you've laid everybody out in I feel like it's too bad that they don't use nubbins and more Mm. more throughout the film because he is such a vibrant character I'll say um he's capable of so much Mm -hmm. and if there were anything you needed as a director anything you needed to happen I feel like nubbins could have been really the one driving that forward but as it is I guess everybody with a large enough family or with enough family members has that one person who does exist as the outcast. Mm, Yeah. I mean, there's kind of always a weakest link in a chain and sweet nubbins. (laughs) But I think you, you, some of the stuff that you brought up kind of illustrates how roles in a family can change. Like grandpa's role probably changed from being the public face or the figurehead more realistically to a more symbolic figurehead. Cause I would imagine the community probably doesn't even know grandpa's still alive. Like I would pretend he's dead (laughs) just like given the like legal ramifications of someone living that long. Um, But like, you know, in families, when like a new child is introduced through adoption or birth or whatever, the role of like the pre-existing children changes. You may have been like the baby of the family and now you're no longer the baby. You're no longer the youngest. So like if for some reason there was, there was another like baby had in the Sawyer family, like Leatherface's role might change, maybe not immediately because he's an adult and like you said, is the strongest and really the only one who can do the butchering. But it might change in some sense because now he's no longer the one who needs the most attention or the most mm-hmm. care because there's a, a more like dependent member of the family. So roles can shift and change based on the development of the family. And often when someone's role changes in the family, that can bring like a level of distress to the person. Like I'm sure you can imagine like in your own family or in your own experience, even like at work, right? When our roles change a little bit, it's like, what? <laughs> what am I doing now? I've been doing this the whole time and now I have to do something new. And so because Leatherface and his family have this, like so many unspoken rules that dictate their roles, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no like negotiation when roles change. So when, if someone were to be introduced to the family, or even if like grandpa were to die and who fills the vacuum of the figurehead role, well, Drayton would probably assume that it would be him, but Nubbins, our wild card, may want to take on that role because he sees a power vacuum and is <laughs> ready to rock it. And that in itself can cause distress in the family system that might tumble out in other ways where they would then end up in a family therapy room if this was a normal family and not a cannibal fictional family. <laughs> and just one more point about roles, like I've mentioned a, a little bit, um, punishment is like a big thing in this family. And characters are very clearly punished when they deviate from their role. For example, uh, Drayton starts to physically assault Nubbins when Nubbins reveals that he didn't do what he was told. He didn't follow his role of, I guess, collecting people or like luring people back to the home. Um, He like acted too erratically and drew attention to the family 
in a way he was is not supposed to do and so swift physical discipline is brought upon people that like don't follow their role in the family one last point about boundaries because this does relate to roles like the boundaries we build around each other determines our roles in the structure of the family boundaries can be either enmeshed diffused or they can be disengaged rigid. Enmeshment and diffusion means that it's really unclear where one family member ends and the next one begins. This is like overintrusive parents or like kids that can't quite separate from the family. Like that would be a, a, an enmeshed, diffused. There are clearly enmeshed boundaries in the Sawyer family because they just can't quit each other. They're always sticking around. They, they've been with each other for a very long time. When you have enmeshed boundaries in a family, the family becomes over-involved with each other and family members can begin to feel a lack of autonomy and feel overly dependent upon the family. So that's kind of like the cons of enmeshed boundaries. We see a little bit of that with the Sawyers, right? They're clearly dependent upon each other. Even Drayton, I don't think, could be autonomous on his own because he needs Leatherface to do his butchering for him. So the family has fostered like dependence on each other. The other end of the spectrum, the disengaged or rigid boundaries means that the family members have little contact with each other outside of their subsystems, which I'll get into a little bit more. But this may look like uh, parents only really have a relationship with each other and they don't engage with their children well. So mom and dad or dad and dad, mom and mom super close, get along well, but have a hard time relating to the kids because they're not in that like kind of primary relationship. And when we have rigid boundaries in a family, it can limit emotional expression and can limit the sense of support one gets in the family system. So I would argue that the Sawyer family also has some rigid boundaries or disengagement in the family because I don't know if anyone's really getting a lot of like social support <laughs> out of the other family members. Certainly doesn't seem like it. I mean, it's strange though, because they, we keep going back to this dining room scene, but it's really, I feel like one of the, it's, it's one of the, I'm going to say the word needy and I'm so sorry. I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to keep using that word. Uh, it's, it's got the most characterization in it. We see all the members of the family interacting um, in this kind of traditional sense, they're all sitting down for their evening meal, mm -hmm. um, which is strange and off-putting for maybe somebody who's experienced the same thing with their own family, uh, given that they have a guest that they have tied down to a chair and given that they're serving human meat <laughs> and given that one of the family members is wearing a mask of human skin there is conversation among the family members but it seems like they're more egging each other on to mm. then draw the attention of their guest of the victim sally mm. it seems like everything that they say is to catch her attention and to rile her up further so really they're partaking in this more i guess you could call it torture in a way this torment of mm -hmm. her they're enjoying the evening together as they sit down and have their evening meal it's hard to it's hard to know how they are without having a stranger there if they simply eat in silence or if they do sit down and converse I think that would be interesting to be a fly on that wall to see mm. <laughs> them during a quote-unquote regular evening yeah I actually honestly good point I didn't even think of Sally as like intruding almost into the family system or as like being a visitor and that they may be performing like the family dynamic I mean, not for her benefit, but like as part of this, like we have a new person in the home and she's kind of throwing off the balance within our family structure because her energy is new, her role is new, and we know she's not sticking around. So we can maybe like be a little more 
crazy around her, a little more wild because uh, we're going to be eating her later. She's not sticking around. <laughs> it's all very performative. I mean, she is physically bound to a chair, but they still put a plate of food in front of her. Mm-hmm. They don't provide silverware, but they joke that she should eat. And mm-hmm. they joke that it's actually tastier than she'd expect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, you know, they're all having fun at her expense and they're all taking pleasure in her torment. And they're, like I said, they're just working off of one another, except for Leatherface, who doesn't seem to really interact with Sally a whole lot until Mm. he's told to get up and to manage her by Drayton. I think, yeah, I think he's told to get up and to get her so Grandpa can do his bit. (laughs) The very silly hammer dropping. (laughs) That's, I know it's supposed to be incredibly scary. And I can imagine as somebody who maybe didn't, at, at that time when it came out, it was probably very terrifying, but as somebody who's just uh, um, taken in a lot of horror media and plays the video games and everything else, it just it. Every time I saw Leatherface swing that sledgehammer, I heard a bonk sound effect in the back of my mind. Yeah, it's not it's not cutting edge, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's interesting what you bring up about Leatherface maybe not engaging with Sally. Because he, I think he's the one who has been hurt the most by loose boundaries or by the enmeshment in that he is the most dependent upon the other family members because he's the one who doesn't leave the home. He's the one who seems to be almost like paralyzed in his actions unless he's given a direct command like by Drayton telling him to like get Sally or to, you know, do this or that. And so his actions in that dinner scene are about him getting direction from Nubbins and Drayton and maybe even to some extent Grandpa, even though Grandpa's kind of checked out. But he's not interacting with Sally directly. He's taking the lead from the others. And I think this can happen very often in family systems where enmeshment is very high in that the person who is on the other end of the intrusiveness, right? Like maybe the child on the end of an intrusive parent doesn't really learn how to decide how to behave for themselves because someone has always told them what to do or how to act or what to think. And so then when they get into adulthood or situations of independence, they're like, what you got for me? Like, (laughs) you always told me what to do. What do I do now? And that's when we end up with situations that look like failure to launch or other like, you know, kind of pejorative terms we have for like children who maybe don't leave their families' homes. Not, Not that that's always a bad thing, but I think in this case because it's the Sawyer family, it is also an illustration of how when you don't let a child decide their identity and decide how to make decisions for themselves and you do it for them, they never figure it out and and won't be able to do it magically as an adult. So yeah, so that's what Mnuchin has to say about boundaries. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is subsystems, which is how a structural family therapist would use the subsystem. They would use the subsystems to make some of the interventions. So subsystems are like, if we think of the whole family as one system, subsystems are kind of like the pairing off that happens between different members. So there's four main types. There's spousal subsystems, parental subsystems, sibling subsystems, and extended subsystems. And it's not always like two people in a subsystem. It could be multiple people, but it's at least two. So spousal, clearly it's like who is married or who is like in a relationship in the family. And also keep in mind that this theory is from like, the 40s and 50s. So it's pretty like heteronormative and cisnormative and assumes that every family has like a husband and a wife in it. I digress. Mnuchin is long dead. God bless him. <laughs> but in a spousal subsystem, 
we're looking at someone who is in like the wife position or the husband position and how they relate to each other. So it doesn't include your role as a parent. It only includes your role as a spouse. And I put here that I think Leatherface may be like drawn into the spousal subsystem Mm -hmm. when they make him dress up like a woman because we don't know why or like anything about that. Like we've mentioned, it -hmm. may be possible that Leatherface is being asked to like play wife, play homemaker, like play that role in the subsystem because there's no one to fill that role for Drayton when he comes home from work. First of all, the implications of that are <laughs> awful. <Scary. laughs> Though I I do see in a way how Leatherface is fulfilling the classic traditional sense of the quote unquote wife. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've mentioned, he is stuck at home. He is the one responsible for providing for the family. So he's putting dinner on the table in a way he's doing whatever else needs to be done at the home whatever else yeah, i think he's in charge needs of, to be done at the home he seems to be in charge of decorating with the horrible bone furniture <laughs> yeah i mean if he's the one that is i apologize he's the one that's welcoming the guests um, <laughs> yeah he's the one that is storing all of the food um breaking out all the items for decor bones and such the skin and everything else it's in a way i mean if leatherface were a woman you could see it as he's doing very much the wife or the mother's job of being home being available to whomever comes to the home and busying himself in the kitchen as it were again in a very like heteronormative traditional housewife kind of manner um, he is also the only character in the entire movie that wears an apron mm-hmm. um, which is smart but uh, I do I do see how that in combination with him being forced or choosing to dress up in the uh, female mask and the more feminine clothes could fit him into that role. But again, like I said, the idea of Drayton being the opposite in that particular subsystem to Leatherface, it just, it's really unsettling to me and it's not something I want to think too long on. <laughs> Okay, I'll move on from that. But I will just say, I think maybe they dress him, potentially a theory could be they dress him as a woman to make it more palatable that he participates in the spousal subsystem in that role or in the parental subsystem as the mother figure that Mm -hmm. because they are a, I'm going to assume pretty like not progressive thinking family that they're like, a woman has to do this role. So you have to dress like a woman to do it. And that's how he can participate in the subsystem in a way that the family can accept. But that's just my my theory. <laughs> no, I, I I think that's a very valid theory. And if, if it's something that they're telling him to do, or maybe if it's something he grew up seeing, mm-hmm. he grew up seeing mom or grandma dressing in this manner and going about her business. Then when he goes about that business, he dresses in that manner. Yeah. And that's just part of the, the system or the, the structure of the family that he's picked up on. So mm-hmm. that's spousal. So pr- then parental subsystem would be the role of whoever's parenting the children in a family. And Mnuchin separated out spousal from parental because if we, let's just say we're using like a heterosexual couple, a man and a woman who are married and raising children. In the spousal subsystem, the woman has the role of wife. And Wife comes with very specific boundaries, comes with very specific like duties expected of them, yada, yada, yada. In the parental subsystem, that person would be, would have the role of mother, which is different from the role of wife, even though we often wrap them up, especially when we're talking about like this type of family structure, 
mother and wife are very different roles. And when the person is operating within the spousal subsystem, they're operating as wife. They're relating to their husband or their partner as wife, not as mother. And when they're relating to their children, they're operating as mother. But the parental subsystem is mom and dad operating, hopefully, on the same level, almost Mm -hmm. like against the children. (laughs) It can be positive, right? It can be like parents making decisions for the children within their subsystem. But often where we see dysfunction is it's like mom and dad in the parental subsystem at war with the other subsystems. And that the disconnect between what's expected of me in my spousal subsystem and what's expected of me in my parental subsystem can be frustrating. And I think sometimes the roles overlap. You can also think of this in maybe like blended families where maybe someone has married into a family and you're part of the spousal subsystem, no problem. But parental subsystem includes someone who now lives outside the home, right? Real mom or real dad and your stepmom, you're not in that original parental subsystem. You're trying to figure out your role in there. So I just think it's so interesting that they're different from each other, even though our assumption is like the people who are in a relationship are also the parents. And that's not always the case. Now, the parental subsystem for the Sawyers, kind of unclear. I think it it could be Drayton. It could be grandpa. Like, it's unclear. And I think that's also why this family is so dysfunctional, is that you can't quite figure out which subsystem you fit into, which Mnuchin would say is how you figure out how to kind of get along in the family. (laughs) It's as Drayton does seem to be kind of the knee-jerk reaction as far as who is the parent figure, the parental figure in this family. Though, I mean, if he weren't to come home one night, I'm sure Nubbins and Leatherface would just tear each other apart. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the Drayton certainly doesn't command the same respect that the grandfather does, but the grandfather is un- physically unable, at, as far as I can tell, to parent the rest of the household, mm, the, ki- mm-hmm. the, the kids, as it were. It's incredibly tough. I think, I mean, if I were asked who's the mom and who's the dad or you know, where are your parents at? I don't think there's really anybody that suits that role. Drayton, I think, I think I may be trying to put Drayton in that role because of his age, because he is a male Mm. and because he does take that more commanding role. But the way that he, his authoritative nature over Nubbins and Leatherface doesn't feel parental to me. It doesn't feel Mm. familial to me. It feels more like a, a supervisor to his underlings. It, it just it doesn't seem to be, I'm doing this for our benefit. I'm doing this for our future. It's more like, this is what I need from you. And I, I need you to do it without question, mm-hmm. I guess. But I guess that might speak to like a kind of parenting, I guess. But again, it's, it's tough with this particular movie because we don't know how these people are related. We don't know if they're actually related. Um, and we don't know how the other would define the people in their family. We don't know if Leatherface would look at Drayton and say, yeah, he's my dad or he's my uncle, except Drayton does refer to Grandpa Sawyer as your grandfather. He says, go get your grandfather for dinner. That's true. Um, And Nubbins and Leatherface go grab him. So that's really the only (laughs) side we have to work off of. So the parental subsystem is kind of stumping me, I'll be honest. I think Drayton's really our best bet with what we have but it's something me a little bit. I'll think about it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's one reason why I wanted to talk about family systems in general with this movie, just because you can see how complicated it can get very quickly. Even with these people who are supposed to be related to each other, it's really hard to figure out how they do interact. And 
specifically with structural of that, I think it kind of illustrates how some of these theories are maybe a little outdated and although can be updated and still be useful, just because something was invented a long time ago doesn't mean it's still good. And I think this movie tests the like boundaries essentially of structural family therapy. Now I will say that I think this is my little PSA to people who maybe feel parentified in that if the parental subsystem is left empty, like left vacant, maybe because in this case there is no father figure, there's no parent figure, or in some families it's because parents have checked out, they're using substances, they're, you know, having health issues or whatever, like parents can't fulfill the role. Children often can get sucked up into the subsystem. And we think of like the older children who maybe become mom and dad or become the parent to the younger children. They are then taking on a subsystem that Mnuchin would say they're not supposed to take on. And so it's, they're almost like ill-fitted to the subsystem. And then if the parent were to come back and be like, I'm ready to be parent again, well, that, that power vacuum got filled. So where is parent supposed to go? So this idea of subsystems, I think, can just really illustrate how it doesn't have to be based on like who you're married to or what, you know, what order you fall in the family, that once you've taken on the role, you kind of get sucked into that. And now you are like your mom and dad, (laughs) even if like, biologically speaking, you aren't mom and dad of the family. So for all my parentified (laughs) children out there, this may be an explanation of like what it was like growing up where someone needed to take the role, the, the fill the vacuum, and you got sucked in, you became the parental subsystem. All right, next subsystem is the sibling subsystem. I guess we could put everyone in here because they're <laughs> all maybe siblings. They're all related. <laughs> uh, but I would say probably Nubbins and Leatherface have the more clear like sibling type dynamic. They have kind of like a sibling rivalry again not very not very a close or warm relationship because I don't think anyone in this family is capable of warmth Um, but Mnuchin talked about in some of his work that the like parental and sibling subsystem might be in conflict with each other uh, and that siblings can kind of like gang up together to try to overpower the parental subsystem there is something very powerful about like almost like your age peers like joining together in the subsystem. And there is something like special about the children of a family having a relationship to each other outside of their relationship to each parent. So kind of like taking the spokes off of the wheel, they get to be the hub of the wheel and have their own relationship to each other. Again, not healthy <laughs> in this family. It's it's it almost makes me wish that we had more interaction to view between Nubbins and Leatherface Mm -hmm. though I'm sure given how wild and zany Nubbins is (laughs) to Leatherface's more pragmatic give me something to do what's the next thing that I need to do for the family like what's going on you know in a way now that I say it out loud in a way Leatherface is almost thoughtful in comparison (laughs) to Nubbins because we see Sorry to drag us back to this, but we see Leatherface very handily take care of three strangers Mm. back to back who just intrude in his home. Um, Not trying to justify the murder of these people, by the way. Every time I say that, it's like I'm trying to justify his actions. Um, But we have one after another after another just help themselves into the home, and Leatherface doesn't seem to be expecting them each time, but he assesses the situation, physically overpowers whomever he needs to, and very quickly puts them down. Mm. Um, 
be it uh, killing them or making them unable to fight back with such a quick, like a mental quickness that kind of surprises me now that I think back to it versus Nubbins seems to move from object of interest to object of interest mm. and may not have that mental wherewithal to really sit and think or to really think tactically at all like we see Leatherface do. With all of that said, um, in a way, given their their placement within the family, they do make the most sense as, as siblings. Um, I could see, in a way, Drayton and the grandfather maybe being related if the grandfather weren't old as God. <laughs> and it's kind of like a mush pile. <laughs> At this point, grandfather is old enough to be uh, like a creepypasta. He is... <laughs> oh, yeah, he's... And I don't mean that to be offensive, but... I, he's I, perhaps, perhaps he's too old to be of any relation to Drayton other than his father but it does make sense given how we've fit everybody else into the family um, that Nubbins and Leatherface are who we would consider to be members of the sibling subsystem yeah and I think that the point you bring up about like almost like a thoughtfulness versus a impulsivity would put them at odds for fighting for dominance in the sibling subsystem that mm-hmm. I can see Nubbins having all of his ideas and his impulsivity wanting to, you know, maybe say, well, this is what we're going to do, or this is the plan, but then not having the follow through. And so whose plans are really going to get followed through with in the sibling subsystem? Probably Leatherface's because he's the one who will stick with it, but he is so often overshadowed by like the energy of Nubbins that he probably never suggests anything. So even within that subsystem, there is like a like wrestling for power that they probably don't know that they're doing it's probably just like inherent within their dynamic okay so last one is the extended subsystem and this this is like extended family so anyone else grandpa seems to be the only one like grandpa to everyone else be the extended subsystem this would also include like if there are any aunts and uncles or cousins they could kind of be in the extended subsystem as well and i think this one is a little more complicated because the family members in the extended subsystem tend to be farther away from like the nuclear family and each individual member of the nuclear family might relate to their extend extended subsystem differently now in the sawyer family they all seem to be pretty much on the same page like grandpa is the best we all love grandpa he gets the special treat of hammering the woman in the head his he holds like a a, a special role but we might think of a family where maybe you know, uh, the mother of the family relates to the extended subsystem of like her in-laws as like contentious relationships, whereas the father is like, they're my family. I love them. And they can have two different relationships with the same extended subsystem. Same with like maybe the children of those parents relate to their grandparents or their aunts and uncles differently from each other and differently from their parents. So it kind of starts to get kind of like diffused <laughs> out through the generations. But the Sawyer family is unique in that like grandpa lives there he's around <laughs> not doing much be bopping up and down the stairs in his wheelchair um but he does hold this like position of reverence and each member of the family seems to have a very similar relationship to him of like they're on the same page about what they think about grandpa i do wonder if that sense of reverence is dictated by drayton mm. if that's something that the younger members of the family have simply simply picked up on and in a way adhere to uh, because that's just simply how they understand it because I can't imagine grandpa being able to 
impress them or <laughs> earn the respect that they show him given his advanced age. I mean, mm-hmm. Let's say, let's say Leatherface is mid thirties. Yeah. 40s? I think they're there. No, I think they're in their twenties. Cause Nubbins is 25. That is a rough 25. <laughs> yeah. That is the roughest 25 I have ever seen. It's not good. It's not it's good. The, so so grandpa would have been 99. Still. So grandpa, yeah, grandpa <laughs> would have been 99. Grandpa would have been very possibly unable to impress the youngins with his strapping woman killing ability with the mm. single head bunk um, with his authoritative and commanding presence because this man was 99 at that time so it's interesting to me to think were grandpa physically not in the house if he were just a piece of lore in the family Mm. would he be receiving the same would he still have this place of honor and respect among the family if drayton weren't deferring to grandpa if drayton one day decided let's not bring him downstairs for dinner how would that shift grandpa's place in the family? Like, would he then lose his place in the subsystem? Is that something that's, is that something that is, I guess, is there potential of that happening? It, can somebody, you had mentioned earlier that if there is no, say, like mom or dad in mm-hmm. the parental structure and one of the children moves up into that role, can somebody move up and out? entirely of a subsystem i'm sorry if i jumped up a little too early into the question part of this podcast. the q a <laughs> yeah no that's a good question and like short from total cutoff which is what we would call like a family member that's no longer communicating no longer like welcome into the family mm-hmm. you still remain in the subsystem it's just that mnuchin would argue that it's a very hierarchical Uh, theory so it's like someone has to be in charge at the top and then it kind of power trickles down um if like for example grandpa were to just like be ignored like be not considered to be as powerful in his subsystem as before Mm -hmm. um then Mnuchin would argue that like Drayton might then start to like take the power that grandpa has and to override like his parental subsystem and try to like rise up on the hierarchy where he's not supposed to be as like a child of grandpa right because he's Mm -hmm. supposed to stay in his child subsystem grandpa stays up here in the extended one it's a little trickier because you can kind of just like let an uncle or aunt go and like (laughs) never really get them back um Mm -hmm. but short yeah short of like cut off or death you're still considered to be part of the subsystem it's just it would be considered a dysfunctional one because Mm -hmm. the hierarchy is now out of whack And that's another reason why I think this is a little bit of an outdated theory is that it's very insistent on like this level of the hierarchy has to have all the power. Parents are in charge. Mm -hmm. Children are supposed to have like no power. Um, And that's just not, I don't think really how we at more modern times understand family dynamics, that children do have power and autonomy in the family. Not all of it, but they do, they do have some. Um, does that answer your question? I think I talked around it. <laughs> no, it does. It does. And it's, it's tough because we are working with a theoretical family whom we don't have all of the information to. Um, so we're just kind of working off of, again, this, this fake family off of our own assumptions. 
made off of them and off of very thorough readings of the Wikipedia available <laughs> to us. You know, I, I agree in that from my perspective, again, as not a psychologist um, or a psychology student, uh, <laughs> that this theory does seem pretty outdated, though I could see, I could see different cultures, uh, families of different cultures maybe fitting a little bit better into this kind of structure, uh, maybe even a larger family unit with more mm. extended family around. Um, though I don't know how, speaking from not a family that I could easily fit into this kind of theory, I can't say with confidence any one culture and I certainly wouldn't try. Um, it's just a, a thought that cropped up in the back of my mind, but like with anything else, yes it may have worked back in the the 30s 40s when it originally came out that's why it came out that's why it was given such credence but yeah so many years have gone by and society has gone through so much collectively and we have learned so much um, parenting styles have changed the family unit has changed the way that we live our day-to-day lives has changed so something like this can't just be slapped on to every family and be expected to work 100 percent hence Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Sawyer family. <laughs> yeah, what a wonderful illustration of like, we're trying to jam or I'm trying to jam this family into this theory and it, it, it's not a, a perfect fit. And I think that like Mnuchin's ideas about boundaries are still really useful. Like the idea of enmeshment and, and rigidity. I think mm-hmm. we still do that when in family therapy context and still kind of talk about that in relationships. But yeah, the idea of like a family has to have a specific hierarchy and if you break the hierarchy, you're bad does not allow for all types of families and all the different combinations that we can have in families. Even if the like main parental or spousal subsystem is like a man and a woman, like there are so many types of families where those people may not be married or those people may not live in the same house or you know, what if a parent dies? Like, do you have to get a second one to fill in the subsystem? Like get a second <laughs> if grandpa dies do they have to revive grandma i mean <laughs> rehydrate her corpse like i, I don't know um, bernie's it's, it's a whole thing yeah but yeah i i appreciate like your perspective as someone who's like seeing this theory from the like the community side of like it can feel kind of weird to have a like a therapist or mental health professional be like know your subsystem and like you got to stay in your role and I don't think many people do that anymore, but I think it's just so interesting to learn these theories and know like this used to be a way that we thought about families and it's not always a helpful way to think about families. And so when we're in therapy or we're seeking services, we want to kind of know where do our providers come from in terms of theory and is their theory or their like ability to work with you able to be flexible and based on what's best for your care and not just based on like what's prescribed by some guy who taught himself family therapy 50 years ago. It certainly uh, makes me think if you can dream it, you can do it. Because <laughs> he, he dreamed it and he did it. He dreamt it. it is. <laughs> I wonder and we if, still teach it. I wonder if he ever thought they would be teaching it so many years later. I wonder if he ever considered that a couple of nerds would sit down one evening <laughs> and uh, try to apply his family therapy, his structural family therapy theory to a classic horror film. If that was his dream, then 
we did it. We helped him achieve that dream. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like, as someone who's also like worked on the academic side of like teaching people who are going through like marriage and family therapy programs, this is something that is often like your first assignments when you get into the program before you actually are seeing families is we'll ask you to watch a movie or a show and then kind of diagram out the family based on the theory that you're learning at the time. So you can see how if you're just like in your first semester of grad school and we're asking you to do this and you don't know the theory and maybe you don't know like how to apply it yet, we're asking you to do both at the same time. So that's just a little PSA for anyone who's looking to go to grad school. This might be something that you're asked to do because we want you to practice applying the theory before you do it on a real person. I mean, I really, I really hope that's what <laughs> grad school is for. I mean, I hope you guys are all thoroughly vetted. I'm kidding. I know you're all thoroughly vetted. You know, I know you know your things forwards and backwards. And oh, man, I just, I can't imagine having to pick a movie to do something like this. I've but, seen, so. I saw, I read a paper a student did on Shrek. <laughs> they diagnosed Shrek and Fiona with like marital problems. That must have been a fun read. It actually really was. They were a little off on the diagnosing, but like the conceptualization of the relationship was really interesting. And like, you know, her family did not like her husband and they had different cultures because Shrek was really into being an ogre and Fiona was not into being an ogre. <laughs> like the cultural whole, mismatch. Yeah. She completely hid the original part of herself. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. So maybe that, that can be your homework. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't assign homework here. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I've given you the quick and dirty version of Maduchin's theory, any questions or any like kind of concluding thoughts about this movie and the family dynamic? Well, just considering the Sawyer family within this theory, it's and I understand the theory is simply a way of laying out the family. It's a way of kind of, as I see it, of organizing the members of the family and gaining a sense of who does what and how does that power and responsibility lay among the system. So I can't help but think, and I've probably already said this um, during this recording, but I can't help but think that if one of the family members were were to be removed, be it arrested, disappear, or whatever, if one of them were to be removed, the rest of the family would spiral. Mm. Maybe not grandpa, maybe not grandpa, but if... Leatherface was to disappear suddenly, everything that he does may not be so easily picked up by mm-hmm. the remaining family members. Um, were Nubbins to disappear, it may not be because he does so much for the family, but it may be the family spirals out simply out of fear and anxiety for what his mm. absence may do to them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, is he going to lead the police here? Is somebody going to come knocking, going to come looking for him? Um, You know, is he out there telling other people about what we're doing here? And if Drayton were to disappear, I'm sure uh, the bank would come and pick them up eventually, would foreclose on the family land. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And the two quote-unquote children, Leatherface and Nubbins, would be without direction. Mm -hmm. And they may not know what to do with themselves because grandpa can't tell them what needs to happen and when. So it's, it's just the thought that I had that if well, again, if one family member were to be removed, I feel like the rest of the family would simply collapse without them. Yeah. And I think, I think on one hand, in general, family systems do experience like tremors when someone is removed or someone can't fulfill their role anymore. Like, I think that's just like across theories, what we might see in a family. 
But I think to your specific point about like in this family, in the Sawyer family, because their roles are unspoken, but very clear, right? Like Leatherface does his role. Drayton does his role. Like nobody really crosses roles. If you take someone out, they don't have the like family rules to talk about who's going to pick up the slack or who's going to be able to do this. And the roles are so like defined that once you take that person out, then that's never going to get done again. Like that, that part of the family is going to suffer. And like, if Leatherface gets taken out, they're all going to starve because he's the only one that can like butcher the food, mm-hmm. even though Drayton is the cook. Like he's the only one who can kind of like get them, like you've said before, the raw ingredients. I know it's disgusting because it's humans, but it's all fake. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, that's something that like, is important to consider in like regular families that are not the Sawyer family is when you pull a member out, regardless of if you were aware of their role or not, it shakes up the family. And this can happen for positive reasons, like a child moving away to college or, you know, maybe parents separating who shouldn't have been together. Ultimately it is like a positive change. It still can cause like distress in the family. And that's often when we see people come in for family therapy is like, how do we adjust to this change that now our roles don't make sense as much? They're neatly stacked on top of each other and you pulled out the bottom Jenga block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that unfortunately in the Sawyer family, the roles are gross and like a poorly built Jenga tower. <laughs> built out of bones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, a, t- a Jenga tower of bones. So you pull one out for sure, it's going to come crumbling down. And then who knows what like, catastrophe will be wreaked upon the community because now this family is like in shambles probably why nobody has ventured forward onto the land because they're it's southern polite (laughs) they're minding their business we're minding ours (laughs) yeah and that's probably why nubbins gets punished so harshly for playing around with bones because you're bringing attention to this family and we get to operate in silence at our like you know doing whatever we want the community has allowed us to do that but you're drawing attention to us and that violates like our contract our social contract with the community right so nubbins is like a danger to the family which is why i kind of agree with your point that they'd probably take him out themselves if the police started sniffing around being like this like greasy haired weird bleeding guy (laughs) around this crime scene let's go check it out yeah i'm sure he would end up in the freezer next without without a second thought they may not even eat him they might disrespect him so much Um, And yeah, I think in that family, that would be disrespectful of like wasting meat. (laughs) Yeah, probably. You got to use every part of the nubbins. I'm sorry. I think you found your tagline (laughs) for the episode. I get that on a (laughs) t-shirt. My first merch. (laughs) I only came for the merch. That's why I'm here. The free free merch that guests get. (laughs) Where's my coffee tumbler? In the mail. Well, I think that's like about all that I have about this lovely, lovely Sawyer family. Any last parting thoughts, Becca, about the movie, the franchise, women and violence, any of the topics we covered? No, I I don't have any really final pressing thoughts. <laughs> I'd just like to, I guess, reiterate, uh, watch classic horror films. Mm-hmm. Take everything you see with a grain of salt. Try to understand that they are very much a product of their time. Mm. But if you enjoy horror, then I think they're well worth your time. Yeah. What a lovely announcement. (laughs) My PSA coming in from the horror crowd. Yeah. I think there are ways to engage with older media that still allows us to like critique from a modern perspective, but also like appreciate art that has lasted for this long for a reason. 
there's a reason you can still find Texas Chainsaw Massacre on streaming services and not like the thousands of like disgusting <laughs> bad movies that no one can find anywhere. It's a classic for a reason and can be enjoyed from a critical lens and from a like entertainment lens. Just like we're still talking about structural family therapy to this day, as you yeah. said, Grace, it's still being taught <laughs> because yeah. there's got to, there's worth in it. There's worth in these classic horror films. So yeah, there's worth in classic like psychoanalytic theories. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a beautiful merge of those two points. <laughs> Well, thank you, Grace, for having me. I have had an absolute ball of a time. I'm always excited to watch these horrible things for you and (laughs) to see how you tie them into psychology somehow. So thank you for having me. I'm so, so very thankful for this. Oh, thank you, Becca. And I'm so glad that you got to come on again. This is definitely going to become a tradition uh, for you to come on during spooky season. And to all the listeners, we just want to say thank you for listening all the way through and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.